Welcome to the Bridge Policy Download, produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Today, we're bringing you the audio from a recent webinar we co-hosted with the Classical Liberal Institute on the current immigration debate. The panel shares insight from their recent books and working papers on the topic, and then go on to discuss the benefits of immigration, reform options for our current Congress, how and why reform efforts should be informed by policy research, and much more. If you'd like to contact a scholar involved in this webinar, please email mercatusoutreach at mercatus.gmu.edu. Dr. Leah Palagashvili, Senior Research Fellow here at Mercatus, will be moderating the discussion. Thank you for joining us. My name is Karen Zarnecki, and I'm the Vice President of Outreach at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. We are very pleased to partner with the Classical Liberal Institute at New York University School of Law to host today's discussion on U.S. immigration and key lessons from the latest research that can serve as a guide for any future reform efforts. For over 40 years, research scholars at the Mercatus Center have drawn from a distinctive tradition of political economy that incorporates ideas developed by several Nobel laureates to solve society's most pressing problems. The current challenges facing the U.S. immigration system are at the forefront of policy discussions and the basis for the conversation today. The speakers you'll hear from are political, legal, and economic thought leaders. Each has recently published a new book or working paper on the topic of immigration that they will discuss. The insights and ideas you're gonna hear today will hopefully provide a fresh perspective on the immigration debate. But fundamentally, policymakers and the American public must decide what course of action is best moving forward. This decision impacts both citizens and immigrants alike. And now I'd like to turn it over to our co-host, Richard Epstein, who directs the Classical Liberal Institute and is a professor at NYU School of Law. Richard, take it away. Oh, thank you so much, Karen. Look, it's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, the Classical Liberal Institute cannot claim the pedigree of 40 years. That uh, is the title of the Mercatus Institute. We've been around for eight or so years, but I certainly hope that we have made our impact on general areas. The kind of implicit premise of the Classical Liberal Institute is that if you're trying to figure out what watchwords were, you would start with a couple of them, limited government, private property, and freedom of contract. Uh, is uh, three phrases that cover about 80% of what we know, but all the hard work comes in the remainder of these things. And immigration is exactly the kind of topic that the Classical Liberal Institute and the Mercatus Institute should really be thinking very hard about. Generally speaking, as a matter of the state of nature, everybody believes that people ought to be able to roam about the globe as they freely choose, respecting only the private property rights of other individuals. Uh, but in a world which has nations and territorial boundaries, uh, free immigration turns out to be a much more difficult and dubious proposition uh, than it might otherwise have been in that state of nature. Uh, nobody wants to say that all immigration should stop. No one seems to be able to say, except a few diehard, that all immigration should be allowed regardless of constraints. So trying to find the middle ground is very difficult. Uh, Karen started to refer to the fact that there would be solution, and I don't know whether it's a singular or a plural that one's talking about. I do know that this debate will go on, and the way in which I tend to conceive of this is, given the heavy weighty interest on virtually every side of the debate, what we will hope to do is to lurch from weak consensus to weak consensus in an effort to see if we can improve the situation. Uh, on a topic as difficult as free ed, a free immigration, the best should never be the enemy of the good. A good classical liberal likes to have general theories on the one hand and incremental movements towards them on the other. 
Now we have here a panel which is going to sparkle and shine on these topics and so forth. And it's going to be hosted by uh, a unique force of nature herself, Leah Palagashvili. And I've had the pleasure of knowing Leah since she was an undergraduate at, uh, at George Mason. We still have a picture together, which I keep in my scrapbook. And she is the one who has organized this panel. She is our dynamo who will make things go. So I will turn it over to Leah and the adventure shall begin. Thank you so much. So welcome everyone. And thank you to uh, both Richard and, and Karen. My name is Leah Palagashvili, and I'm a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Uh, the purpose of this event is to showcase the latest research on immigration and to uh, bridge the gap between these academic ideas and the current immigration reform efforts in the US. There seems to be a momentum, even some bipartisan opportunities for reforms. Former George W. Bush published this book just a month ago, I have it right here in front of me, uh, out of many, one, it's Portraits of America's Immigrants uh, that showcase the positive impact of immigrants um, on the U.S. So uh, thank you, each of you, for being here and being part of this unique opportunity uh, to convene thought leaders and to promote perspectives on the current immigration challenges. Uh, to our listeners, our intention is to have an engaging conversation. And without further ado, I'll start off with introducing our keynote speaker uh, who will lay the foundations of this discussion. And uh, this will be followed by a panel of immigration scholars who will discuss their specific immigration research and apply it to understanding different immigration reforms. So our keynote speaker today is Professor Chandran Kukathas, who has published a book last month with Princeton University Press called Immigration and Freedom. Professor Kukathas is the Dean and Professor of Political Science at the School of Social Sciences at Singapore Management University. Prior to that, he was the head of the Department of Government at the London School of Economics and Political Science, and he received his PhD in politics from Oxford University. Professor Kukathas is the highly regarded political theorist best known for his contributions to the theory of liberalism and multiculturalism. And as a small side note, uh, one of his books called uh, The Liberal Archipelago is in my personal top five books that have influ uh, that had the most influence in my thinking. I actually read it as a graduate student and I would highly recommend it, of course, in addition to his latest book on immigration as well. And he has a list of far too many books and academic writings to list here today, uh, but I encourage you to uh, follow his work on his link LinkedIn page his author page on Facebook, um, or his university profile page. Uh, you could just Google him, Chandra Kukathas. And I'll uh, pass it over to our keynote speaker. Well, thank you very much, uh, Leah, and uh, to everyone on the panel and to the organizers of this, this event. And thank you, everyone, for, for joining in this, uh, this conversation. The, the presentation I want to make to you today draws on a fundamental argument in the, the book I've just published. It's not uh, a, a simple summary of the book, and there's, I hope, far more in the book than I could present in, in 20 minutes. But I do want to get at the key theme. And I think that what I have to say in this, uh, in this book is something that's gone relatively unnoticed in discussions of immigration, and that is the, the question of freedom. I've called the book Immigration and Freedom because I want to put freedom at the center of discussions of immigration in a way that it's that it's not been in the past. And maybe I'll start with uh, a slightly dramatic fact, which I think bears reiterating. And it's not unique to the United States, but it's certainly true of the United States, that in the last 80 or 90 years, 
the United States has deported one million of its own citizens. Obviously, it did not do this deliberately in the sense that it did not intend to deport citizens. It intended to deport people who are not Americans. But in fact, it did deport a million people whom it considered to be not Americans and not deserving of a place in the United States. Now, of course, mistakes happen, but a million mistakes is a lot of mistakes. And the reason I highlight this particular fact is I want to draw attention to the fact that immigration control is what we should really be concerned about when we think about immigration, rather than thinking simply about the the costs and benefits of immigration itself. Immigration control, I think, should be a much more important subject of our consideration. And that's because immigration control ultimately is about control on people. And to a much greater extent than I think we've appreciated, it's a control on our own citizens. It's a control not so much on outsiders, but a control on insiders. And the reason for this, I think, is fairly evident once one reflects on it a little bit, because immigration control is not actually primarily border control. After all, most states, in fact, want the borders to be crossed all the time. In the United States, for example, about 380 million border crossings happen each year. And that's without even thinking about the millions of trucks and planes and ships that enter the ports of the United States. And mostly governments want these crossings to take place, not just because these are returning citizens, but because they want people to come as exchange scholars, as tourists, as entertainers, as sports people. And they want all the benefits that come with people moving in and out of a society. But what they're concerned about ultimately is not people entering the society, but what people do once they're in the society. What they want to control is the extent to which people who cross the borders and come into a society participate in that society, whether it's by taking a job or setting up a business or buying a property or entering a university or offering a service to their fellow um, human beings, or whether it's by simply falling in love with someone who is already inside that society. That's what immigration control is about. It's primarily about controlling what people do inside a society rather than controlling those people at the borders. It's not to say that they don't control what happens at the borders, but that's a very, very small part of what goes on when we're talking about immigration control. And to that extent, immigration control must invariably be about controlling not just outsiders, but insiders. And the reason for this is that insiders are all too often ready to engage with outsiders. People like to trade with others. They want to hire people. They want to admit people to university. They want to rent to them. They want to let them open bank accounts. So if you want to control outsiders and what they do, you're going to have to control your own citizens. You're going to have to monitor and regulate your employers, your businesses, your universities, your schools, your landlords, your banks, and so on. So immigration control ultimately ends up being control over citizens and residents of a society. And I think this is something that ought to be of concern to any members of a free society, because the greater the extent to which you tolerate or accept immigration control, the greater must be the extent to which you accept control on your citizens and your residents. 
To that extent, what it does is it makes the, the free society a little bit less free. But I want to actually stop here and take one step back because there is another aspect I think that's also gone relatively unremarked or unnoticed. And that is, although I said that immigration control does not simply mean border control, but control of people within a society, actually the control that immigration control requires or means begins a little bit sooner than this, because it really begins with the very question of who is an immigrant. That's where the, the question has to be settled. Who is to count as an immigrant and who is to count as a national? Now, one might think that this is a fairly straightforward matter. Of course, we know who is a citizen and who is a national uh, on the one hand, and who is an immigrant or would be immigrant. But a little reflection should tell us that this is actually a much more complicated question, because the entire matter of nationality is itself not something that's established or settled as a matter of course. It's not a natural category to say that someone is a native or a national. This is something that's politically and legally determined. People determine who is an insider and who is an, an, who is an outsider. And the question is, how is this determined and by whom? Now, let me give you one particular kind of example of this, which I think is, is pretty striking. If you take the United Kingdom. Now, in the United Kingdom, if you go back to the middle of the last century, just a little bit before 1948, there were, in fact, about 800 million people who had British nationality. The reason for this is that Britain had an empire, and everyone in that empire had the right to move about in the empire, to travel to Britain, to settle, and to reside in Britain. They also were obliged to pay taxes, they could be conscripted into the armed services, and they had to obey the laws that were made by the United Kingdom. They were, to all intents and purposes, nationals. They were, to all intents and purposes, British. Sometime in the 1940s, Britons in the United Kingdom itself started to think that some rule of exclusion had to be established to prevent people from parts of the empire returning to the United Kingdom. And what this meant was that ultimately, a large number of Britons were stripped of their nationality and ceased to be British subjects or indeed British citizens. Now, you might think that this is a very unusual particular sort of a case, but the same could be, could be said equally of the United States, which, which in its own history has varied the definition of nationality over the 200 years since its very first existence. From the very beginning, the United States had definitions of what counted as a citizen. As most of you would probably know, for a very long time, you could not be a citizen of the United States if you were not white. But this meant, of course, that there were long debates going well into the 20th century as to what counted as a white person. This is how the category of Asian was invented in the first place. There was no such word before then. The category of Asian was designed to, def to define a particular kind of category of person, which, aside from... Africans were also ineligible for membership of the United States on the grounds of race. Race meant that you could not be a citizen or a national of the United States. But of course, that led to further debates as to what really counted as white, even among Asians. And at one point, some Indians from the Indian subcontinent 
were classified as white and others were not. The same could also be said of the category of women. For a long time, women were natural born Americans, lost their citizenship if they married foreigners. They no longer had the nationality of Americans. Over the course of the 20th century, America revised and continued to revise its immigration laws in order to define the category of nationality. So we shouldn't begin by assuming that it's clear what is a national and what is an immigrant. Immigration control begins with definition, and it is the first step in dealing with people in a way that can strip them of their freedom, allegedly or purportedly in the interests of some other whole. And this brings me really to I think what is the fundamental thing we need to appreciate about immigration and immigration control? The debate about immigration is ultimately not a debate about the interests of citizens or nationals versus the interests of outsiders. The debate about immigration really is a debate among insiders, among nationals, among fellow citizens as to how to regard people someone to regard as outsiders who should not be admitted, and others who want to think of certain people as either already like themselves and members of their own community, or who want to admit people into their community. So it's not something that one can address by saying, how do we decide what happens about people outside? because there is no agreement among the we. Different people in countries, whether it's the United States or Australia or Britain, include people who have different attitudes to outsiders, whether it's because of the issue of whether to employ them or whether it's the issue of whether to allow them in for other purposes, ranging from marriage to attending school to setting up business. This is an internal conflict or an internal debate. and the most important thing about this debate is that the way in which it is settled has a bearing on the interests of citizens and residents of a society. Indeed, it has a bearing on their freedom, because when immigration controls are enforced, they not only limit the freedom of outsiders, particularly if they're prevented from entering, but also if they're prevented from behaving in certain ways within a society. But more importantly still, it means the regulation of insiders, the regulation of one's fellow citizens with laws that say, you may not hire people that you choose. You may not associate in other ways with people that you choose. You may not do business with them. You may not rent to them. You may not do a whole range of things. This is what immigration control ultimately uh, means. And I think... The other reason that we should be concerned about this is that not only is such control potentially damaging to people outside, or for that matter, to people inside, but it also has a significant bearing on the kinds of institutions we have. Because once you establish institutions of control, what you have to recognize is that this means giving a great deal of power to particular people within the society to say, you get to determine how it is that your fellow citizens will live, what they may and may not do. And one thing we should always appreciate, I think, when we give people power, is that this not only gives them the capacity to use it both for good and for ill, 
but it also gives them the capacity to favor some people over others. Those who capture the institutions of control are not people who are simply necessarily going to act for the public good or for the good of all. They're all too likely to use that power to protect certain interests, or certain parts of the community to the disadvantage of others. And the more seriously you try to exercise this control, the more seriously you endanger freedom because the more seriously you start increasing the power of particular persons. Now, one thing that's often said in response to this is that this may all be true, but there are dangers to not controlling immigration. And indeed, there are gains to be made by controlling the movement of people, by controlling what sorts of things they might do once they enter a society. The question is, are these gains as significant as people think? And even if there are gains to be made, are they so so great as to outweigh the costs of the loss of freedom that I'm speaking of? I think there are three kinds of arguments that are made, economic arguments, broadly speaking, cultural arguments, and then arguments from self-determination. And I want to suggest to you very quickly, and I'll let some of the other panelists speak to this point, I think that all of these arguments ultimately don't stand up. The economic arguments, I think, are probably the weakest of the arguments because a close examination of this question will reveal that all too often the gains from immigration far outweigh any costs that obtain, even if we look at the people who are worst affected uh, as natives or nationals by the influx of immigrants. The cultural arguments, I think, are a little stronger, but here the problem is, especially in a diverse society like the United States, which encompasses a broad range of ways of life, ways of thinking, different religious attitudes, different moral attitudes, it's very difficult to say that there is, in fact, a single cultural ideal that shapes everyone's thinking. So to exclude people on cultural reasons either means that you take one particular dimension of your society and say this is the dominant culture to the exclusion of the views and thinking of your fellow citizens, or you simply admit that actually there's so much cultural diversity that this cannot supply a reason for excluding others. But what about the argument from self-determination? Ultimately, some people say we are a home, or we are a family, and we decide who comes in and who doesn't. Now here, I'd like to simply make a very simple point. It's clear that if one is the occupant of a single apartment, it's probably right to say, I have the right to decide who comes in and who doesn't. But once you start to talk about something more complicated, I think the issue itself becomes more complicated. If you're sharing a house with your partner, it'd be a tough place to live if you had to insist that you always had a veto on who, who entered. You should probably negotiate it a little bit more closely. If you're living in a shared apartment with others, to give everyone a veto or even insist that they be a majority vote whenever anyone can be invited would make it a much less happy household. But imagine that it's a condominium and you say, well, this is our home or this is our family. Well, if a condominium was one that required everyone to have a veto or even that 
required a majority voice to determine who could or could not come in, that place would probably not only be an uncomfortable place to live, but I doubt very much that these rules would be obeyed. But now imagine that the home in question is a city, or for that matter, a country as a whole. Why should anyone be told that they cannot associate with whom they wish on their own terms in the privacy of their own association? And who is anyone else to tell you that you can't associate with someone, that you can't hire someone, that you can't teach somebody because someone in some remote part of your country thinks that this is the case? Well, if you make the argument, no, but we collectively self-determine who is the case, let me then quickly just point out that actually there is no self-determination here. Firstly, because the group itself as a collective doesn't agree on this matter. Any decision that's made simply reflects the preponderance of power. Someone's won out in a political contest and they're deciding for everybody else. The other point to make is that for many countries, even for the United States, immigration control is in fact not a collective matter. It's a matter of an international regime. There are international laws that countries have acceded to, and the regime that's controlling the movement of peoples internationally is in fact not a succession of national regimes. It's a complex international network. It's not a simple matter of self-determination. It's in fact a much more complex system of controlled with the emphasis on control, meaning that this gives greater and greater power to some people to determine the way that many of us have to find ourselves living. Now, let me then finish with one last consideration. And this is an observation I often hear made by people when they hear this particular argument. And they say, well, why is it such a big deal that we're controlled? After all, we're used to being controlled. We're used to being regulated, whether it's whether we're standing in, an, in a queue at the airport, whether we have to register to get a license to drive a car, or whether we want to, in fact, do a whole range of things. We are, in fact, controlled, and this is just one more control. And my answer to this particular question is, yes, we are. We are, in fact, people who are getting very, very used to being controlled. And this is maybe the point at which we should start saying, do we want to live like this? Do we want to accept yet another set of controls, particularly when these are controls that will push us further and further down the road to a kind of world in which we not only come to accept control over ourselves, but we also end up accepting that others are controlled and perhaps unfairly. And we allow ourselves to accept all this because we ourselves have lost the capacity to appreciate the importance of freedom. Thank you very much. So thank you, uh, Professor Kukathas. Next up, we'll have our panel of immigration scholars uh, that will provide some key remarks from their immigration research. Our three immigration scholars will be uh, Alex Narasta. I invite all of the panelists to turn on their uh, microphones and or turn on their videos at this time, but it'll be Alex Narasta. He is the Director of Immigration and Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C., and has just published a new book called Wretched Refuse of the Political Economy of Immigration and Institutions. Uh, Alex also has a reputation of knowing every single research study and every stat related to immigration. Uh, next, we, ha we also have... Uh, 
Dr. Robert Crawl, who is a professor of economics at California State University and a senior affiliated scholar for the Marcata Center at George Mason University. And Robert just published a Marcata's working paper entitled The Effects of Immigration on Entrepreneurship and Innovation. And that is available on our um, Marcata's website. And we also have uh, Adam Cox, who is a professor of law at New York University and is a leading expert on immigration law. And he also just published a, a new book in 2020 called The President and Immigration Law, which he'll be discussing today. And uh, I'll hand it off to Alex as our, as our first panelist. Thank you. Well, thank you, Leah. First off, I wanna say uh, Professor Kukuth's book is uh, really unique because it deals with immigration its effects on individual freedom. It considers both the freedom of immigrants to move to opportunity and voluntarily interact with people in different countries in a mutually beneficial and voluntary way, as well as the freedom of natives in each country to interact with immigrants as they see fit. Now, there's a lot to like in Professor's book, uh, but my prediction is that Chapter 3, Title Control, will go down as a classic in the literature on immigration. Now, let me give you uh, two examples related to this. You know, Chapter 3, of course, Control is about how immigration restrictions control natives and everybody else in the United States or in any other country. And uh, there are two great examples of this. You know, the goal of employment verification in the United States is to prevent the hiring of illegal immigrants, an activity uh, illegal only since 1986 in the United States. As a result, every time anyone gets a new job, they must fill out a 99 form and provide government documents to the employer as evidence of legal employability. In essence, the government has made employers the enforcers of their own labor market regulations. Now, some states, such as Arizona and Mississippi, have gone the extra step and mandated E-Verify, a federal government employment eligibility for verification system that forces employers to check identity documents of new hires against government databases, uh, another way in which employers are forced to enforce federal law. Of course, native-born Americans and non-immigrants must be run through these systems, too, or else they are totally ineffective. Um, now, the good thing is they're not really effective anyway. Um, E-Verify is a very easy to fool system, very easy to get around. Now, this means that E-Verify's effect on our freedom is less than it otherwise would be if it were effective, but it still imposes a burden on Americans as well as immigrants. Um, our freedom is also, of course, impacted by the quality of economic and political institutions in the United States. Immigration reform, um, in the United States, or the idea of immigration, uh, the, the best basic counterargument against uh, a more liberal or open immigration system is that it could undermine the economic and political effect, impact uh, or the economic and political benefits of, uh, of free institutions. That immigrants typically come from countries with less free economic and political institutions. So the great fear is that somehow they will bring these institutions with them to the United States. Uh, and somehow undermine either through voting, through impact on culture, or through other means, the economic and political institutions that make us so wealthy in the United States. Now, my new book, Wretched Refuse, The Political Economy of Immigration Institutions that I wrote with Benjamin Powell at Texas Tech University, uh, takes a look at this argument in detail. We use uh, several economic models and other political models to try to understand how immigration affects institutions in destination countries. And we look at several case studies uh, from the United States, Israel, Jordan, and other countries that have received massive influxes of immigration through exogenous shocks. Uh, I think Alex is having some tech issues. We, we apologize for that. 
And hopefully when Alex gets back on, um, we'll be able to chat with him for, for a little bit. Again, apologies uh, for that. He was having a little bit of tech issues. Um, so our next panelist is uh, Robert Kroll, and I'll let him get started uh, with his presentation. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Hey, Galea. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, <clears throat> my comments are going to be directed at the relationship between immigration, entrepreneurships, and innovation. I think it, it perhaps is an underappreciated topic. Much of the discussion in the economics literature deals with labor market outcomes. What's the impact on native wages, native employment? Uh, I'm going to focus my talk and, and the, the paper, my working paper uh, reviews essentially the work that's been done over the last 20, 25 years uh, dealing with the impact of immigration on entrepreneurship and as well as innovation. A uh, couple of points or comments. Uh, my first point, if you, if you look at immigration and the skill levels or the education levels of immigrants, it's actually changed quite a bit over the last 20 or 30 years. I mean, if you go back to 1960, you know, about 26% of the immigrants had uh, less than a high school, uh, less than 12 years of education. About 33% had a bachelor's degree or more. If you look at the last four years or so, it's changed quite a bit. Uh, unskilled uh, labor has dropped to about 18, uh, of immigrants has dropped to about 18.5%. And interestingly enough, immigrants with a bachelor's degree or more is at 47.9%, which is actually higher than uh, natives. And so we, we can see that the uh, there's been a very significant change in the skill levels of immigrants over time. Now, when we think about entrepreneurship, of course, we understand what entrepreneurship is. It's part of a competitive market process where individuals, both natives and immigrants, are responding to incentives, profit motives, attempting to find opportunities, new products, new services, or maybe simply better ways of doing that. One of the big concerns uh, over the last 20 years is it, it appears as if the U.S. economy may be becoming less dynamic, that there may be less uh, startups occurring. Uh, if you look at a recent Congressional Budget Office report, they were, they were calculated back in 1982, you know, almost uh, 38% uh, startups represented about 38% of all, all firms. Uh, that's dropped to about 29%. It's still an open question in the research area, research literature, dealing with, you know, why is this the case? You know, is it, is it the growth in regulation? Is it our tax policy? The, the, the aspect that I'm interested in is the demographics. If we look at demographics uh, since 2000, uh, we see that there's been a decline in the percentage of the workforce between the ages about 35 and 55, which is the, the age range where you see um, they're most likely to start a firm. And so immigration uh, may be a way to offset this a little bit and obviously have hopefully have positive growth effects for the economy. Now, when we look at uh, immigrants, they do, the evidence suggests that they are entrepreneurial. They may very well be a bit more entrepreneurial than the average American. And of course, the question you wanna ask is why would that be the case? And, and we see a couple of things. I mean, first we notice that they appear to be more mobile. They seem to be more willing both to move between countries and within countries to try to take advantage of opportunities wherever they may be. The second argument, which I kind of like, is that if you think about the decision to immigrate, okay, 
it's a risky decision. You're leaving your home country, you're moving to another country, the language may be different. Uh, it's risky. And they may very well have a, a greater tolerance for risk. That's very similar to starting a new business. Starting a new business is also a, a risky endeavor. So that may, their tolerance for risk may be a reason why we see higher levels of entrepreneurship. There may also be a certain amount of discrimination, uh, at least initially in the labor market. And of course, there was the potential for a, a large payoff if, if successful. Lastly, if we look at immigrants and, and, and again, looking at the educational background, a lot of them have science, math, uh, technical backgrounds, which fits in nicely with the tech sector in the United States. So when we look at the, the research that's been done, trying to get a sense of, you know, you know how big or how big is the entrepreneur, immigrant entrepreneurs, uh, there's a number of different studies. There's different numbers that have been generated over time. There's some interesting ones. If we just sort of look at first and second generation immigrants, we, we find estimates of 40 to 50% of Fortune 500 uh, companies are founded essentially by, by immigrants. And so that's a, a, pretty, a fairly significant um, percentage. We can look at this very detailed data looking at, uh, excuse me, very detailed analysis looking at uh, trying to get a sense of different data sets, different time periods using different definitions of, uh, of Im uh, immigrants' roles in, in, in terms of entrepreneurship. Um, and what we tend to see you know, if you look at all the different studies that, you know, a good ballpark number would be that, you know, about, you know, about 25% of uh, new startups are, have immigrant founders. I mean, there's higher and lower numbers depending on the particular year you look at. If you take a look at um, entrepreneurs or individuals starting businesses as a percentage of their population, if we look in terms of uh, entrepreneurs as a percentage of the immigrant population, you know, it's maybe about seven, seven, seven and a half percent. If we get natives, it's about four percent. So it's quite a bit higher. So this data is sort of suggestive of um, uh, perhaps a greater tendency to be entrepreneurs. Um, lastly, when we look across different sectors of the economy, obviously the percentages are not identical, but we, we see we see immigrants starting businesses both in the high tech area as well as lower tech areas. Uh, service industries, retail, restaurants, that sort of thing. And so we, we see it, the impact in terms of entrepreneurship across the board. The other topic that I, that I talk about in the paper is innovation and, uh, and how big of an impact uh, in, innovation ha uh, has. And, and probably the best way to look at it is in terms of patent data. And a number of papers find uh, you know, the average number of patents from a college-educated immigrant tends to be a bit higher than a native. Uh, if you narrow it down a little bit to looking at just say uh, scientists and engineers, it, it does the difference narrows a bit, but still you, you still, it leans towards immigrants being or playing a bigger role in, uh, in innovation. Perhaps the most interesting work has been done by an economist, William Kerr at, at Harvard. And what he tried to do was break down the ethnic makeup of patents in the United States. So he's looking at U.S. patent office data, and he tracked, using basically names, uh, the percentage of U.S. patents filed by different ethnic groups. 
And so it's pretty interesting what he found. If we go back to 1975, about 90, a little more than 90% of patents uh, were essentially Anglo-Saxon Europeans and a fairly small percentage uh, non-Europeans. If we, I'm going to compare it to chi- chi- the individuals from China and India because they are the, the fastest growing group that I, that I can see. But back in 1975, Chinese were about 1.6% of all U.S. patents, Indians about 1.7%. If we move to 2015, the share going to essentially Anglo-Saxon Europeans had dropped to 72%. Uh, for the Chinese, about 10.5%. And for Indians, about over 7%. Uh, so uh, almost a fourfold increase. So you can see that this increase in immigration, particularly of higher skilled immigrants, has had a fairly significant impact on patents, the creation of, of new ideas and better ways of doing things. Other papers find comparable numbers. Again, if you think about it, you know what percentage of startups uh, or, or what percentage of patents come from immigrant immigrants. You know, mid twenties in terms of percentages, mid twenties is a pretty good number. Uh, a particularly interesting paper uh, by Bernstein, Bernstein, and and their co and their co and the co-authors of that paper um, wanted to look at the interaction between immigrant and native uh, researchers and inventors. And what they found was fairly interesting. Uh, What they did as an exercise is they looked at pairs of researchers and what happens to the productivity of one of the researchers if if one of them dies prematurely before age 60 is what they use. And so we're looking at pairs of immigrant, say, scientists with native scientists. And so if the immigrant were to die prematurely, we found that if if you track the career of the native researcher, their research output falls fairly dramatically by as much as 50% or even more. If we go the other way, if the native dies and the immigrant continues to do research, again, you get a decline, but it's not quite as dramatic, about half as much ballpark number. And so we can see that there are significant spillover benefits between the collaboration between these different groups. And, you know, the interesting question then becomes why? Why do we see this, these very significant large effects? And as you think about it, the knowledge base that the immigrant versus the native brings to the game is different and perhaps very complementary. And so uh, that's the important point to see that there's this complementary relationship that they don't bring identical skills, but they are complementary skills. And it's, it, it has a significant contribution to research productivity as measured in terms of patent activity. And so there are a lot of other uh, papers that I reviewed in, in my uh, in my paper, but uh, I think the bottom line here, just to kind of sum things up, is that when we look at the impact of immigration entrepreneurship, clearly they're playing a role in starting new businesses. And secondly, uh, they play a clear role in terms of innovation, at least as measured by the patent data and actually other kinds of measures as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Robert. We have a question from um, an attendee who asks, what influences immigrants to disproportionately specialize in STEM over natives? We we do see that. I mean, as an outcome, we see that if you think about the skill distribution of immigrants, it's heavily weighted on the tails. We have, you know, obviously a certain amount of unskilled and a certain amount of highly skilled. uh, And and it, it just seems like the 
the numbers of uh, highly skilled immigrants is, is significantly higher than I think the natives. Uh, you know, why do they specialize in, in in more technical areas? You could argue that the, particularly for immigrants, the you know, language can be an issue. And so when you specialize in science tech areas, the language component isn't as important. It's not as much of a disadvantage. So they're less inclined to go out and become a lawyer. Not that none of them are lawyers, but they're much more inclined to be in a technical field where those language communication skills aren't quite as important. Okay, thank you for that. So I'm going to move over to Adam now, who will do his presentation again. Thank you, Bob. And we'll move over to um, Adam now. Great. Thanks so much uh, for having me today. And I, I really want to build off of um, Chandran's core insight, you know, which was that migration controls have really important implications for freedom, not just the freedom of outsiders, but the freedom of insiders too. And I guess I want to an, add an observation to that insight, which is it might be tempting to think that the implications for freedom are just a product of how open or closed immigration policy is, right? Whether it's extremely restrictive or extremely liberal. But it's not just a product of that. It's also a matter of how we choose to enforce the restrictions on movement that we do have uh, imposed on people who seek to cross international borders. And that's really what uh, my recent book with Christina Rodriguez is about, right? It's about the dramatic changes in the structure of immigration uh, regulation and enforcement that took place in America over the course of the 20th century. Those changes made the president our immigration policymaker in chief. And those changes have really important implications for Chandran's core uh, question about uh, migration policies um, impacts on people's freedom. Okay, so let me speak a little bit about the basic idea in the book. Um, it's really about two things, right? It's about the history of how the president became our immigration policymaker in chief, and it's about how we should feel uh, about that fact today. Now, the, the, the idea that the president plays a really big role in immigration policymaking is um, today kind of everywhere you look. Um, you know, you can see it over the last four years and in President Donald Trump's um, ban on migrants from majority Muslim countries, um, in the fight across the last three presidential administrations over President Obama's uh, signature initiative DACA designed to shield uh, dreamers from deportation. Um, and you can see it in the dramatic changes across administrations in uh, asylum policy along the Southern border. Um, and those events can make it tempting to think that what we're witnessing is a really new phenomenon. It's about Trump or it's about uh, polarization in, in, in DC in recent years. Um, but Christine and I argue in our book that um, we're not witnessing something new, um, that the roots of the president's power to shape immigration policy in America are much uh, deeper. And that understanding those roots is really critical to um, both understanding the implications for freedom and charting a path uh, forward for reform today. So you might think of our book as kind of the real story about how the president came to wield this power. Um, I can't cover the book's entire thesis, you know, in the seven minutes I have to speak now, but I just want to point out three things that I think are important because they connect up with Chandran's core remarks. Um, so over the course of the 20th century, 
we went from a world where um, immigration regulation really did look more like border regulation um, to one where it looks remarkably different, right? And, and there were three changes that drove uh, these developments. The first was really a change in the technology of immigration enforcement, um, the rise of deportation. So the earliest immigration restrictions in America, you know, passed in the late 19th century, um, were in statutes that often actually lacked deportation provisions altogether. So exclusion at the border was the primary means of regulating immigration. And immigrants who took up residence were welcome to stay as long as they wished, participate in the labor market, basically however they wished, um, so on and so forth. Contrast that with today, right? Today, the grounds of deportation in US immigration law are almost too numerous to count. Um, and really everywhere, um, the regulatory system today makes migrants' rights to remain in America contingent, always under threat of being taken away. So that first change, a rise in a kind of technology of deportation, which pushes enforcement to the interior, um, was joined by a second change, which was the explosive growth of an enforcement bureaucracy over the course of the 20th century. You know, something that Chandran, I think, was really hinting at a lot, right? At the turn of the 20th century, when America began its project of immigration restriction, there was very little enforcement at land borders. Um, most enforcement was at port, a few ports of entry. Um, there was no border patrol before 1924. And even when the Immigration and Nationalization Service was um, created as an administrative uh, apparatus, it was widely seen and was largely ineffectual. But today, the Department of Homeland Security, which oversees immigration enforcement, has a budget that dwarfs the budgets of all other federal law enforcement agencies combined, um, enough resources and personnel to deport upwards of 400,000 non-citizens each year, which um, for reference is more people than are incarcerated in the entire federal criminal justice system today. Uh, so two changes, one legal, the second bureaucratic, then collided in the final third of the 20th century with rapidly rising rates of unauthorized migrations, a kind of demographic change. Now, why unauthorized migration rates rose so dramatically in the last three decades of the 20th century um, is a complicated and contested question. But the consequences of that rise were really clear. It gave us a world in the United States where 11 million non-citizens, that's half of all non-citizens in America, are here in violation of immigration law. What that means effectively is that we run an enormous shadow immigration system alongside the former one. And that brings it back to Chandran's core point, because that shadow system means that our immigration code is increasingly less significant. And what matters are the enforcement choices made by um, executive branch officials and supervised by the president. And so that puts the president in charge, delegates to the president tremendous authority, not through some express statutory provisions, but just through the structure of the system, right? And that delegation of authority um, has significant implications for freedom because that authority operates mostly on the back end of the system. As Chandran noted, it means enforcement in the interior. It means surveillance, not just of non-citizens, but of citizens. Now, even in a world where we don't 
reach a political consensus to dramatically liberalize immigration, it's still possible to structure immigration regulation differently than we do today. And so that's a way, even without more open immigration policies, we could temper the implications of immigration regulation for the freedom of both outsiders and insiders. Thank you for that, Adam. And uh, just a quick question. What do you think might be the easiest or low-hanging fruit for how to um, move towards a better system uh, for reform, given everything that you just said, right? It's a great question. And I think we need to think separately about the opportunities available to Congress and to the president. Um, You know, for Congress, uh, obviously, um, the, the biggest step Congress could take would be to shrink dramatically the size of the shadow system. And while, you know, a broad legalization that would um, eliminate the shadow system, I think, is unlikely to, to you know, um, achieve a sufficient political consensus in this country, um, large programs to protect a lot of folks from deportation um, have been, at various moments over the last decade, even with our high levels of polarization, have, have, have gotten support of both parties. So that's something Congress can do. On the, on the president's side, even in a world where the president has to supervise the system, the president can take steps to promote the rule of law, right? And reduce the implications, the negative implications for people's freedom. Um, that's actually what President Obama did when he created the DACA program in a way was um, promoted transparency about um, whom from among this enormous um, shadow pool would be uh, protected from deportation because not everyone is going to be deported from the system. Um, and going forward, the Biden administration has a lot of options, you know, even in a world where enforcement is, is central, as it will be so long as the shadow system remains, the executive branch chooses um, what kinds of uh, enforcement tools to use, right? Does it rely on um, worksite raids? Does it use detention at high rates? Like different choices have different implications for people's freedom. Okay, thank you for that. So we're going to um, move to Q&A at this point. And I know Alex is back on. So I'm going to ha- uh, have the first question for him, just to give us a, a chance for him to finish what he was discussing. And Alex, um, I think you right before I cut off, you were talking about what the findings were in your book, about whether um, immigrants did have an impact, whether immigrants had a negative or positive impact on institutions of the country they were going to. And uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, uh, start off with with that, and then we'll move over to general Q&A. Sure. So, yeah, the most important question, I think, when taking a look at how immigration will affect freedom, at least in the long run, is how immigration will affect the economic and political institutions of the countries where they settle. So we took a look at three big case studies in our book. The first was the United States, uh, going back to uh, um, the mid um Uh, 19th century, where we have really good immigration data and then going forward. And we use sort of as a proxy measurement, the um, federal spending per capita, real federal spending per capita uh, in the United States over that time period. And what we hear from a lot of folks who are opposed to immigration is that they think because immigrants come from countries uh, that have less economic freedom, they will therefore try to uh, reduce economic freedom in the United States for one way or the other. We took a look at that historically in the United States. It turns out that the size and the growth, uh, the growth and the size of the federal government actually is closely correlated when immigration is lower and that when the borders were most closed from the mid 1920s to the late 1960s is when the size of the federal government grew the most rapidly in United States history. Meanwhile, like on either wing of that the sort of 45 year 
um, uh, panels of time on either side of that, where the immigration was relatively more open, uh, federal government either shrank as a percentage of GDP or remained about the same. So we thought that was a fairly interesting result. And uh, our main theory is that the reason why immigration doesn't have an impact on the size of government, which is at least, you know, one of many potential measures of freedom is because immigration undermines labor unions and labor unions are a, an organization that lobbies for a larger uh, federal government. Uh, the other two examples we take a look at are the countries of Jordan and Israel, which both had very large, sudden exogenous shocks of immigration to their countries, equal to about 10 percent of the country's population, in the case of Jordan and 20 percent in the case of Israel. Uh, in a very short period of time in the early 1990s, uh, which was very shortly followed by rapid improvements in the economic freedom scores in these countries. And economic freedom score is a measure that we put together at the Cato Institute of how easy it is to trade um, and engage in business um, in these societies. So in all the case studies that we have, uh, we find either that immigration really has no impact on these institutions or that it tends to improve them. Thanks, Alex. And just to unpack that mechanism a little bit more, I think you mentioned the labor unions point, but it does seem, it might seem intuitive for some people that like, let's say I'm an immigrant from the former Soviet Union, and then I come to the US and I might um, want to vote for specific policies or candidates that look like, uh, <laughs> look like, look more socialist, so to speak. And um, can you just unpack a little bit the mechanisms there? Why, why don't we, why don't we see that um, happening in, in the US, for example? Yeah. So, I mean, the Soviet Union example, I think, is pretty extreme, right? Like not too many people were happy with the Soviet Union when they left. But there might be people from places that are sort of more in the middle of the economic freedom distribution. So a country like Mexico, which is certainly not as socialist as the Soviet Union, not even close, but does have more of a regulated economy than the United States. So the idea might be, well, the reason why Mexico is like that is because Mexicans want the government there to be like that. So if enough Mexicans move to the United States, perhaps they will shift the median voter towards being some more supportive of sort of a bigger government or more interventionist government uh, in the United States. And we'd sort of see that across the world. The United States is frequently in the top 10 to 20 freest uh, countries in the world today. Um, so most immigrants are going to come from countries where there is just uh, much less economic freedom um, than there is in the United States. So the fear is that immigrants will bring with them not just their economic contributions, not just their great uh, impact on American cuisine, not just their great impact on American culture, but perhaps they'll bring some different political opinions that could change American political and economic institutions. And we really just don't see any evidence of that. Uh, one of the reasons I mentioned was it might be because they undermine uh, labor unions and other domestic lobbies that sort of push for a more interventionist state. Uh, the other reason might be that the people themselves, the individuals who choose to come here, are people who are just like Americans more, or you know, in terms of behavior or opinion, more similar to Americans before they arrive than their fellow countrymen. So what we're really getting is sort of a cross-section of Mexicans, Chinese, Indians, Nigerians, other immigrants who are already sort of pre-assimilated. You know, they've already adopted a lot of the features of American culture, which means that they're just much less likely to want to uh, change American political and economic institutions in big ways once they arrive. All right. And now um, I wanted to I asked this question to Adam, but I wanted to give uh, the other panelists an opportunity to answer this um, as well, which is what are, are there? There are many areas of immigration um, that may deserve reform. 
Um, which issue or policy area do you think is a low-hanging fruit, which may have relatively greater bipartisan support and thus um, more potentially politically feasible than others? Uh, perhaps uh, there's been some discussion about high-skilled immigration might might be more po- reforming high-skilled immigration may be more politically feasible than low-skilled immigration um, or other things like that. So I wanted to give the panelists um, a, a, an opportunity to to think. Uh, to, to just mention what reforms they think uh, might be the easiest or low-hanging fruit um, that could be done. Could I make a very general kind of observation uh, about this? And this is in keeping with my earlier point that immigration control is not so much about deciding who can and cannot come in as controlling the what the sorts of things people do within uh, a society. It seems to me that an awful lot of immigration control um, can be reduced without indeed adding one more person to the country by simply making it easier for those who've entered the country for one reason or another to do business, to, to do business in the broadest possible sense. Think, for example, of every uh, person who comes in with a spouse. Now, one of the big restrictions that they face is the freedom of their spouses to to work in the country. Now, they're already here. They're simply not allowed to be productive persons. Uh, There is an enormous bureaucratic cost to monitoring and regulating this. Ultimately, most of them, if they've got some uh, talents and skills, will in fact get permission to work, but only after an enormous expenditure of Um, energy and money on their part, but also on the part of the American taxpayer for no gain. And you can just multiply these sorts of examples time and time again, whether it's in universities, in businesses, multinational corporations, and so on. I think if immigration reform began with some of these things, it it would reduce costs enormously, and you wouldn't be admitting a single extra person. Uh, Robert, did you want to jump in on this? No, Sandra's point, that's, a, that's a, actually a really good point. I hadn't really thought about it. I was going to make the obvious point that the, in terms of loosening regulation, they can be far easier with higher skilled workers than the lower skilled workers because so much of the, the labor market debate is the impact on wages, particularly lower skilled individuals. And so I think it would be politically easier. But I think I think Sandra's point is a good one in terms of uh, a, a fairly straightforward way of, of, of improving uh, the situation for immigrant families as well as the country. Yeah, if I could jump in, I think one of the things we need to understand is why is it that native-born Americans or other voters in the United States have the opinions that they do about immigration? There's a lot of disagreement about this. So I want a reform that is politically sustainable. And I think there's a, a growing literature in the subfield of political psychology uh, focusing on sort of the locus of control and perceptions of chaos. And when people have a perception that a certain public policy is leading to chaos and that the government doesn't have any control of it, then they're basically against that thing, uh, whether it's legal or or illegal that's going on. And so one of the things that I would do, if I could, to, 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 to increase the amount of liberalization of the system and to make it politically sustainable is to look at policies that reduce perceptions of chaos in the southwest border right now. Uh, and those types of things, I think, would be much more attuned to, say, letting in lower the mid-skill level workers from south of the border to come in lawfully. Um, 
because I ultimately don't think like most Americans have no idea how many immigrants are allowed into the United States legally. They don't know how many are here unlawfully. You hear crazy estimates from people that make no sense mathematically. But uh, based on the government structure, those folks have just as much a say in the construction of American policy as everybody else. So whatever we can do to reduce the perceptions of chaos, to increase the idea that the government has control over the border, that's the things that we should do first. And I think the number one thing would be to try to increase legal pathways for people along the southwest border so that we can take the pressure off of people trying to cross the border unlawfully and reduce the amount of this perceived chaos where we see people like Border Patrol apprehending thousands of families, putting people in detention facilities. Um, and if we do that, I think we have a much more uh, a pathway to sort of opening a much more liberal system. And the same thing that I think one of the biggest mistakes President Obama made, besides record numbers of deportations, was ending the uh, wet for dry for policy for Cubans that basically said if Cubans got here, they could stay uh, essentially without restriction. And what he did was he ended that policy after he, um, you know, after the end of his second term, but before he left office. And what this basically did was shove many thousands of Cuban asylum seekers into the chaos of the southwest border into the rest of the immigration system, increasing the perceptions that there's this chaos. Whereas before, people weren't that concerned about Cubans coming. It appeared to be orderly. Uh, it wasn't chaotic enough to really get people against it. Now Cubans add to this chaos and that's really making it more difficult to do all these other things uh, that we need to do with immigration. Okay, thank you all. And we have uh, some audience questions coming in. So Adam, we have a question for you. Um, the attendee asks, uh, can you speak a little on President Trump's executive actions on immigration? Is it typical of past presidents to issue over 400 plus executive actions on immigration? And do you see the profound use of presidential action as an issue going forward? That's a great question. So, um, you know, what we show in our book is that presidential control over uh, immigration policy has always been with us. It's been with us since the 19th century, but it's really grown over the course of the second half of the 20th century. And so I would say that, you know, the idea that the president is making decisions to shape significantly um, the polity, choices about who gets to come to the United States and who's going to be forced to leave. That's not a new phenomenon. So that's not a phenomenon that's unique to the presidency of Donald Trump. Um, the particular mechanisms that the Trump administration chose to use to effectuate its policy choices were sometimes novel. So there's a higher rate of executive orders, for example, uh, related to immigration than there were in past presidencies. But that doesn't necessarily reflect more action with respect to immigration policymaking. Um, and there were some tools, um, regulatory tools that, that were used in novel ways. So the, the most prominent um, among those was this thing known as the suspension power. So the suspension power is a power that's uh, been on the immigration uh, books uh, since 1952. It's an authority that Congress gave to the president in 1952 to um, bar from entry any non-citizen or class of non-citizens whom the president deemed um, to be detrimental to the interests of the United States if they were to enter. Um, so that power has been around for a long time, but it's been mostly used by presidents in quite limited fashions. Um, uh, President Trump used it to ban migrants from majority Muslim countries in the earliest days of his presidency. And after that policy was ultimately upheld by the Supreme Court, uh, the administration then began to use that power repeatedly for all other kinds of ends uh, related to the 
the, the pandemic, related to um, labor market regulation and the like. And so I do think that's a new phenomenon that Congress should look at, for example, um, because the suspension power, as Christine and I note in her book, um, you know, has two features. One is it's basically unconstrained. So it could it could definitely benefit from some structuring of that discretion and some oversight by Congress. And the second thing is it's asymmetrical. So the president has the authority to bar people from entering the country, but doesn't have a similar authority in emergency situations to temporarily admit people to the country. And that's part of the reason this goes to what Alex was talking about. One of the challenges at the Southern border is that the president has only a limited set of tools because many people arriving at the Southern border don't fit into the kind of canonical classical understanding of who counts as a refugee under our immigration code. And that puts the administration in a tough position, even though many of those people are fleeing humanitarian crises in their home countries. Um, and so giving the president greater authority actually um, to temporarily admit people in emergency situations could promote more understanding that there's con control, as Alex put it, over these situations. Okay, thank you, Adam. Um, so Adam, that was great. Um, one of the things we definitely saw tested over the Trump administration was uh, what you said, these powers of restriction. But there seem to be some other powers in terms of like, uh, you know, legalization, uh, such as the TPS statute, which is very broad in terms of its power to grant temporary protective status to people who are already here in the United States to allow them to stay. And the statute, as I understand it, is very broad. It allows uh, if their home country is suffering from a pandemic. So do you think we are likely to see a similar test by the Biden administration to try to basically stretch um, TPS authority or some of these other powers to temporarily, temporarily legalize uh, immigrants in the United States in the same way that President Trump stretched his authority to basically bar admit, uh, people from coming to the United States. Yeah, it, it wouldn't surprise me. And TPS, you know, TPS is actually the analog I was thinking of when I was imagining a kind of a congressionally created authority to temporarily admit people to the southern border. Because the thing about uh, temporary protected status, as well as another power known as the parole power, um, is uh, that, uh, well, for TPS in particular, it can only be used for people who are already here. And, and so that means it, it's not available. It, it's sort of an open acknowledgement by Congress that there are emergencies um, that lead people to need to flee their home countries and come to the United States, but it only authorizes the president to protect people if they've already managed to make it here. And of course, there are no legal pathways for them to make it here in many instances. Um, and so that is, as you said, it's that's the kind of system that can beget cynicism among the public because you see people having to break the law in order to get themselves into a situation where they can seek protection. All right. Uh, thank you, Adam. And so we have a question about uh, Britain and Brexit. Now, so uh, the, the question is that, um, you know, a key part of uh, Britain's Brexit project has uh, been anti-migrant. The government had talked about taking back control of our borders. Um, and uh, the commenter notes that um, they have rejected some agreement with the EU that might protect reciprocal freedom of movement rights for Brits and EU citizens. What lessons can Britain learn from the U.S. immigration debate? particularly of how to make the case for a freer, more liberal immigration policy in a debate dominated by nationalism? Well, I'd make two comments. I mean, stressing the economic gains, but I, going back to what Alex was talking about in terms of the impacts on culture, I think that's, I think people maybe worry more about that than they really think through the economic implications. 
And, you know, to reinforce what Alex was saying, I mean, if you think about the person who immigrates, right, I mean, they tend to be fairly motivated individuals, risk takers, and they're leaving an environment where there wasn't sufficient economic freedom in the institution of the week such that it really handicapped them. And once they move, whether they move into the U.S. or they move into the U.K., uh, I'm not surprised about the results you found. I mean, they're simply not—they're they're simply not going to be voting for the rules back in their home country. And so, I think—I think maybe the cultural argument is perhaps more important uh, than than the economic argument in this context. Yeah, I suspect you're 100% right, Robert. Um, and this is something I say that I'm very sad about as a trained economist that a lot of the economic arguments, I think, are not the most salient when it comes to this public debate. Uh, mm-hmm. Eric, Eric Kaufman, who's a political scientist, has a recent book called White Shift. Um, and he makes some claims in there that I think are, are probably true in, in, in the European context, which is sort of a lot of the change in demographics due to immigration has sort of prompted a bit of a reaction uh, from folks and being more opposed to immigration. And I think that that is basically also code for a lot of the cultural shift or the perceived cultural shift uh, that immigrants are bringing to these countries. So if we can understand, I think, the cultural dimensions of this, if people could uh, appreciate that and try to you know, come up with, with, with ways to sort of mitigate or lower those fears, because I think they are quite overblown, um, then, then I think that would be a great step forward, right? So like the marginal impact of an additional study showing that, hey, immigrants coming to the United Kingdom share a lot of the value that British people already have and their children and they, you know, integrate very well in the British value systems. I think we do a lot more to move people than what another study showing that immigrants have a very small effect on the labor market, uh, for instance. And that's what we showed. But, but I do think it, it matters, I think, um, more elsewhere, right? I think a lot of these cultural issues do matter um, a lot more than I think the economic issues. With some exceptions, I think perhaps there's some evidence that public benefit usage it's something that gets people pretty mad. Um, but the cultural argument, I think, as you said, is king. I think there's a kind of irony in uh, the the likely outcome of Brexit, because as they make it more difficult for Europeans to uh, to, to move into, into Britain, um, a possible consequence will be that given that everyone who's settled in Britain and has become a citizen has the right to repatriate members of their family through family reunification um, uh, laws, you'll see a much greater percentage of people moving to Britain as a result of people from India, Pakistan, the West Indies, uh, and all the other colonies of Great Britain, um, bringing more of their um, family with their different cultural traditions to Britain uh, at the expense possibly of uh, of Europeans. I don't think this is something to be worried about in itself, but it is in a sense uh, a little ironic that uh, the, the consequence of, uh, of Brexit, which is a, a separate issue altogether, but to the extent that it limits immigration, a consequence of this will be probably a, a greater change in the cultural composition of Britain. If it were not for the Syrians coming, in mid-2015, I think we would have seen a different outcome in the Brexit election, or at least it would have been a lot closer. So I think that's absolutely um, absolutely true. And that sort of brings up, I think, another argument, which is this argument about sort of uh, uh, national security, about safety, about crime, which we certainly hear a lot in uh, 
you know, the U.S. context, but I think a lot more in the European debate. All right. We have a question. Um, what effects have we seen on U.S. social cohesion as migrants uh, have flowed throughout history? Were we less divided and less polarized during um, lower migrant flows? Alex, this might be for you, but I think anyone can chime in. So the general answer is no. It also measures how we measure something like social cohesion. So if you take a look at something like crime, which I think is probably a pretty good measure of social cohesion, uh, crime rates rose considerably beginning in the early 1960s when the borders were essentially closed uh, and accelerated until about the mid-1990s. Um, past the point of time when immigration was liberalized. It was liberalized, you know, slightly in the late 1960s. Um, and then since the, you know, mid-1990s until basically a year or two ago, uh, uh, crime fell dramatically in the United States. We also see no relationship between areas that experience more immigration and higher crime in the United States. And when we take a look at individual behaviors, whether it be illegal immigrants or legal immigrants, they're much less likely to be criminal offenders. And by crimes, I'm, of course, I'm talking about, you know, violent and property offenses. Uh, we also see no relationship in U.S. history uh, between the number of riots and civil disturbances. There are a number of databases on this and the immigrant flows or populations on the local level in the United States. And ironically, in the mid to late 19th century, many of the riots, uh, which were uh, many of them were anti-Catholic riots. But during that time period, sort of anti-Catholicism and anti-immigration opinion were basically bound up as one. Because one of the little known facts about U.S. immigration policy is from basically 1830 till today, a majority of U.S. immigrants were actually Catholic. Uh, it wasn't by design. It's just the way that it turned out uh, historically. And so a lot of these anti-Catholic and anti-immigrant riots were actually started by native-born Americans and Protestants targeting immigrants. So it could be that there uh, is uh, in some years sort of a relationship between riots and immigration, but it's riots started by native-born Americans targeting immigrants. In fact, the largest mass lynching in the American South was in 1890 in New Orleans that targeted 11 Italian immigrants who were accused of crime and let off. One of the largest mass lynchings in the American West was of Chinese immigrants targeted by uh, labor unions in the mid-1800s in a series of uh, really brutal actions in Wyoming. Um, now, to the extent that immigration targeted and prompted some riots by native-born Americans in the mid to late 19th century, you can make sort of a bit of an argument there. But even then, when you take a look at the entire database and set of riots in the United States, you really don't find a relationship between immigration uh, and measures of riots or crimes, which I think are two of the best uh, uh, indications of uh, social cohesion. All right. Thanks, Alex. And now we have a question for P P Professor Kukathos. Uh, can you speak to how your view in uh, this in the new book on immigration gels with what you say in the liberal archipelago? Uh, specifically, would you favor decentralizing decisions about immigration policies? To what level in the U.S. should it be decided? Um, if would it seem that your new argument applies at all levels? So control at any level is problematic. Uh, but as a political path forward, would you favor devolving that control to localities? Um, I think this is quite a, a complex uh, question. Historically, say, if you look at the United States, there's always been a tension between uh, the federal government and state and local governments. Uh, and in fact, in between the, the government and local communities for many parts of the United States in, say, the 19th century, um, when 
nationality was a much less uh, important issue. Uh, many communities regarded people as members of the community, not on the basis of a passport or uh, uh, a national identity, but on the basis whether they were you know, upstanding members of the community who were uh, contributing to the uh, to the society and to the business of the uh, of, of the community. And if they were, they became eligible for uh, you know, welfare benefits eligible for hospital care and so on. And when in the late 19th and early 20th century, under the pressure of uh, more nationalistic forces in the United States, uh, the federal government tried to clamp down on this to deport or prevent people from coming, they found uh, resistance from these communities, much as you see today, a resistance from sanctuary cities as as they're called. Now, whether this suggests that we should simply try to decentralize is is another matter altogether, because it's not clear exactly um, how you would do this or what this would mean, because we're now living in an era where there is simply, as a matter of fact, federal regulation and federal control. And I don't see any obvious way to, to undo this, except to press for greater and greater liberalization at the federal level. And of course, there's no reason to think that states will necessarily be more liberal in their approach to to immigration. Uh, As to the question about the relationship between what I have to say about immigration and what I have to say about um, political theory questions more broadly in my uh, previous book, The Liberal Archipelago, which started off with a focus on questions of uh, of multiculturalism. I try to address this in the last chapter of my my recent book on immigration and freedom by suggesting that there are really two dimensions along which one might think about the freedom of a society. One is the extent to which people can move freely um, in and out of a society. Uh, At the extremes, you're either prevented from entering or you're forced to enter, as the case of slavery. But in the middle, um, on that axis, on the immigration question, it's a free society. People can come and go um, more or less uh, at will. On the other dimension, we can think about the freedom of a society in terms of the extent to which people are allowed uh, or required to integrate into a society. At one extreme, people are not permitted to integrate at all and are forced to uh, live separately, as you might find in, say, countries like pre, um, you know, uh, apartheid South Africa. And at the other extreme, you might find where, a case where uh, people are, are not allowed to integrate at all. But somewhere along the middle in a free society, what you get is a certain freedom to, to live your life according to your own lights. And I think of this book as, in a sense, complementary to the liberal archipelago because that examined the dimension of integration and this examines the dimension of uh, of immigration. And I think of a free society as one where immigration is, is free because you're allowed to, to move to a much greater extent freely. And a society is uh, is free if you're allowed to, to live your life as you see fit. And if you think about those two axes and the middle um, region um, that these you know, two axes would would describe, what you have, I think, is something I would call an open society. And that's the, the view that I'm trying to defend in, in this and other works that I've written. All right. Thank you for that. And unfortunately, I think we are all out of uh, time for Q&A, but I'm going to give 
the panelists each a you know thirty second uh, time to just do a quick wrap up um, from each one, and then we'll uh, we'll close from uh, close from there. Of course, with only thirty seconds, I guess you can space, <laughs> please buy my book and tell everyone about it. Um, but uh, aside from that, uh, I think that the most important thing that I want to to stress is. I think the importance of taking the, the question of freedom seriously. Uh, and of course, that's entirely appropriate for an organization like the Classical Liberal Institute or the Mercator Center. Uh, but I think it's important not just for them, because ultimately these questions are about how people live. And that's not just an economic question. Uh, a free market is one thing, but uh, a free society is not just a free market. A free society is a society that values freedom along a multiplicity of dimensions. And I think that's what I hope people will take away from this. Thank you. I would, com- I would, just, I would just comment that, you know, economists have spent a lot of time trying to quantify the economic gains or the gain or the costs and benefits. But I think going back to what Alex was talking about with the cultural stuff, you know, there are people out there who argue that the, while there may be these economic gains, but the, there are these cultural losses that reduce or, perhaps even eliminate those gains, economic gains. And I, I, you know, I think the evidence doesn't support that. And, and so I think that's really an important point to recognize. Well, I just want to say that the enormously important book and uh, Professor Kukakis's chapter three, which is about control, which is the idea that immigration restrictions don't just restrict immigrants, but they also restrict the freedom and liberty of people who are not immigrants in that country is a very important point. It is one that is almost totally ignored in the broader debate. And if the result of his book is that we start to talk more about how immigration restrictions and other immigration-related regulations reduce the freedom of people who are not immigrants, uh, no matter how that is defined, then I think that will be an enormous contribution to our understanding of human freedom and human liberty, as well as an enormous contribution to the debate over immigration and which policies are appropriate. And I'll just chime in by repeating really something that I I said earlier, which is, um, you know, if we take those insights from the book seriously, and we're trying to imagine how we get from here to there to a world where, um, you know, immigration controls don't impinge on people's freedom in the same way, then I think we have to take very seriously the structure of immigration policymaking in America. And I think it is so tempting in this political moment to see um, so much of what ills immigration policymaking as the product of a partisan polarization or the presidency of Donald Trump um, and recognizing that the, the, the challenges are much deeper and that we're going to have to unwind parts of a structure that was erected over half of a century in order to make significant progress. Um, you know, it's a cause for some concern, but it's also shows us the path forward. All right. So thank you to our participants today and to our uh, speakers and panelists. Uh, it's been a great discussion. And, and uh, thank you again, uh, everyone. And uh, we also, I meant to mention this before, but uh, Bob Crawl also has a working paper, Marketus working paper that was just released today, and it's available um, on our on our website about uh, immigration and the and effects on innovation, entrepreneurship. I'm seeing some questions pop up on ex- on exactly this point, so feel free to go to our Marketus website uh, for that paper. Uh, and thank you again uh, to the panelists and participants. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to the Bridge Policy Download. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Overcast, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. If you would like to request a meeting with one of our scholars or ask them a question, please email Mercatus Outreach at mercatus.gmu.edu for more information.